In the 19th century, the London Times once asked its readers, what is the greatest problem in the world? The novelist George MacDonald responded succinctly and he said, I am sincerely yours, George MacDonald. We are uh, the problem in our world, aren't we, folks, because we're, uh, we're sinners. And uh, today, uh, in the passage we're up to today, Jesus talks a lot about sin. So you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to talk a lot about sin, okay? Um, but here's a good question for you at this point in time. What is sin? There's lots of different definitions of sin, but let me give you one that I think is uh, pretty helpful. This is from uh, John Frame, his book, Systematic Theology. He, um, it's a real heavy hitter on the theological scene. He says, uh, in contrast, that a good or righteous deed is one that obeys the proper standard, seeks the proper goal, God's glory, uh, and is motivated by true faith, trusting God and love. So in contrast, sin is when we obey a false standard, when we uh, go for a false goal, and we have a false motive. Okay? Is that okay? So that's, I think that's a good working definition of sin. Okay? So Frame would actually go a little bit further, and he would say that sin is disobedience, self-glorification, and unbelief or hatred of God. Um, it's a pretty good def- definition. It gets down to, uh, to the heart of things. When we look a bit more closely at the uh, New Testament, we actually see these kind of ideas come out when it comes to sin. Sin is deadness. It's darkness. It's about being under dominion. In Romans 1, there's this sense that, uh, that sin is a walk toward death. It's a knowing walk toward death. There's a sense in the New Testament that when you speak truth and someone's unmoved or or they're glazed over, then the person's either dead spiritually or you're just not presenting the truth in a way that makes sense. With sin, there's a sense of blindness. There's a preference for darkness because we can hide there. We tend to be slaves who prefer Egypt. We tend to be people, when we talk about sin and humanity, we tend to be people who prefer to be dominated. Think about that. You are someone and I am someone who prefers to be dominated. Because in the New Testament, Satan, the devil and our lusts, our pleasures and our inordinate desires are accented as something that dominates us. We're slaves to sin. We don't know God. Sorry, we know God. And this is Romans 1. We know God, but we don't like God. And we're given over to our ways. And if you actually look at Romans chapter 1 and Paul's argument, he says that all of humanity know God, they know what he's like, but they don't like God, and so they are handed over to their ways. And then Paul will say again, he goes, but they don't like God, and so they're handed over to their ways. And then he'll say, but they don't like God, and they're handed over to their ways. It's quite, a, a very, quite an impacting argument if you go home and have a read of Romans chapter 1. Here's the truth about sin and humanity, is that we love what kills us, don't we? Often. We embrace a lie. That's what we do. When we sin, when we turn from God, we embrace a lie. We embrace the lie that death will bring us life. Who knows have ever believed that? They have, haven't they? I have. You just think, I think this will bring me life. And you know it won't bring you life because you've done it so many times and it never brought you life, but it's going to be different this time. This is going to be the one time it's going to be different. And you know what? It wasn't different, was it? It was just the same as every other time. Sin leads us to get trapped in delusions. 
And I want to ask you this question because this is a relevant question to, um, to the scripture today. Can someone make you sin? Now, before you say no, just think a little bit more about that. Can someone make you sin? Can you make someone else sin? Don't answer too quickly. Anyone here who's ever had anything to do with uh, wards of the state, foster kids, I've had uh, dealings with them in the school here when I was uh, in charge of pastoral care here, uh, knows that we just need to slow down a little bit when we think about can you make someone else sin? Because there's some things that people do to each other that are very evil and very, very bad, aren't they? And uh, I would challenge you to be in the same situation as some wards of the state and not to sin. True? Am I saying that someone can make someone else sin? I don't know. (laughs) This is a... um, A diagram, uh, if you've been at the uh, project long enough, you know, you would have seen this one. This diagram is that the human heart is the centre of morality for humans. And uh, the human heart, biblically, is comprised of the desires, the feelings and the thoughts. And what actually happens is you can see the first circle around the human heart is the body and we believe the, uh, that humans are an embodied soul. Now, who here knows that um, the body can have a really big impact on sin? True? I've been really sick the last week. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it's hard when you're sick, isn't it? You know, it, it just, it, it's a lot harder when you're sick. But look at the next circle outside of that and you've got the societal context. What about the child that's been repeatedly abused over 10 years? What, what, what if they've got health issues that, that roll out of that? So they're, they're hugely damaged internally and externally. Have they been made to sin? Now you know I'm going to say no. Right? And everyone early on just going, no, no one can make you sin. But let's just actually pause and just be a little bit slower in answering that question. All right? Some of you might go, oh, I've got a really nice splice that I can take out of what Peter said. Because when Peter said before, he said he didn't know whether you can make someone else sin or not. I said that intentionally because you ought to be a little bit closer to the I don't know than no, you can't make someone else sin. Do you get what I'm saying? So why don't you uh, join me? We're going to read from Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 38. What we're actually going to see today in uh, the scripture is that there is much that can be done to influence people to sin. And this is because of the nature of sin itself. Mark 9, 38 to 41. John said to him, who's him? Jesus, right? Now, they've just come out of having an argument about who's the greatest. Right Now notice the next thing that they say, okay? Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. (laughs) 
You get that? I mean, I'm not even preaching on that today, but it's just like, can you guys just kind of just let it go for a minute? It's like, seriously, um, if there's someone out there casting out demons, I cannot for the life of me see how that's in any way going to be a negative thing. It's like, let's get them booted out, you know? Um, But Jesus said, don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. (coughs) Excuse me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. It is better for you to end a life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, I'm just going to give you a quick little aside. You may notice that most weeks I don't actually give you verse numbers. Okay, and today I've given you verse numbers because what I actually want you to do is I want you to find verse 44 and 46 for me up there. Now, this is the ESV version. You could do the same thing in the NIV version. You could try and find verse 44 and 46, and it won't be there. Okay? Has anyone ever noticed this one before? Okay, so I'm just going to give you um, Bible textual analysis 101 in about 90 seconds. Okay? Now... The way that it actually worked is there was an original document that was written of the Gospel of Mark, okay? And the Bible, one of the classic criticisms that's made of the Bible is that the Bible's been interpreted and reinterpreted so many times we don't have the truth anymore, okay? People say it's like Chinese whispers. But the Bible wasn't copied in the same way that Chinese whispers occurs, right? It's not copied in a linear fashion where they copied one and then they copied another one from that one and then they copied another one from that one. The Bible's copied in multiples. So the first edition of the Bible, we don't know how many, but the first, sorry, edition of Mark would have been copied into maybe five or ten manuscripts, okay? And then that five or ten manuscripts is copied into a whole bunch of other manuscripts. What they've actually found with Mark 9 is that verse 44 and 46 are not in the earliest manuscripts that we've got, okay? So Bible translators don't put it in. To all the versions. Now you can find versions where it's in it. I think the old King James version has actually got it in there. You know what they su- they suggest has actually happened here is that a scribe has thought there's a nice lot of parallelism that's actually going on. So if you look at verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, you go to verse 45. If your foot causes you to sin, it's c- kind of got a pattern, a poetic pattern to it. And the uh, the writer of uh, Mark looks like wrote it like this. But a scribe has come in and uh, thought that it would actually be a cool thing to stick verse 48 after verse 43 and after verse 45 to give it a poetic kind of flavour to it. Can you see that? Now, it's not actually false to do that in a sense, but it's not, it's not actually what Mark wrote. 
okay? And here's, here's the good news for you, okay? It's actually really, really, really good news to have hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts out there that the Bible is based upon. You know why? Because if there's been a small change, you can actually find that really quick, okay? And so they actually believe that uh, the Bible, I think, is about 99.5% pure because what you actually get with a great assortment of copies is you get the opportunity to make a lot of comparison and make sure that you get down to the, uh, the bottom line. Is everyone cool with that? So you just got to remember, um, especially with the Gospels, what are you dealing with? Well, you're actually dealing with a historical document. And part of the problem with the way that um, skeptics treat the Bible is they want to treat all other history and historical documents historically but when they get to the Bible, they don't want to use the same rules because when you use the same rules on the Bible, it comes up trumps, okay? Like way better than anything else. Uh, but that's one of the tricky things that kind of goes on. You've just got to remember Mark's claiming to write history, all right? So you've just got to use the same historical tools to analyse his, uh, his uh, report of history in the same way that you would analyse Julius Caesar. Is that cool? Is anyone, so there's going to be some of you just go... My wife just, she just doesn't like history, you know. It's, just, it's like, why would you do it? And it has no future. Uh. <coughs> anyway. So just, just to be aware of that. Now, the good news is, you know what I'm going to do? There's a really good article by a guy called Greg Kokel on this and on how textual criticism actually works to make sure that you get to the heart of what's actually been said because there are some variations in the manuscripts uh, and I would encourage you to read it. I'll put the link on the city uh, sometime today and you can have a read of it but it's nothing really to, uh, to freak out about. All right, here's where we're going to go today. Sin is a contagious killer. Sin requires unconventional warfare. Sin and salt. Number one, sin is a contagious killer. Remember the question I asked a few minutes ago. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Do you hear that? Jesus is actually pushing that very, very close to saying that someone else can make someone else sin. Okay? He's using the word causes. Okay? Like you can act in a way that causes someone else to sin. This is a uh, picture of a millstone. The one on the right's a bit morbid, especially because there's a great white coming. It's like you don't have a chance in the millstone as it, as it is, but your two legs are going to be missing in about five seconds. But if you have a look at the one on the left there, the one on the left there is a millstone, and there would be a stick that would actually come out uh, from the middle of that that would go past the edge of, of the well that it kind of sits in there. And the idea is that an animal would actually turn that around that centre post and actually grind up... Uh, the, the grain and things that they're wanting to crush in there. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, if you do something that causes someone else to sin, it would be better, better, listen to that word, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the ocean. Now, typically some of the... Um, the understandings of, uh, of what Jesus means by little ones as being kids. But there's some commentators here who just say, oh, little ones could just be disciples, people following Jesus. So it's like if you do anything to a kid or someone following Jesus that causes them to sin, it'd be better off for you to be thrown in the ocean with a heavy rock tied around your neck. 
And I want to ask at this point in time, what does this phrase tell you about sin itself? Because I think it tells you a lot about sin. And I think it tells you that sin is a particularly dangerous and infectious thing. The Sondergeld household uh, had a uh, wicked virus in the last week, um, which just kind of laid us out, you know. And do you know what? The worse the virus got, the more important it got in our household that no one else got it. You get that? Just like we just can't afford to do this. Like if you go back to the time that the Ebola epidemic was going nuts in Africa, what was the problem with what was going on with the Ebola epidemic? No one was taking precautions, suitable precautions, to stop the transmission of this deadly disease. So what did the helpers do who first came into Africa? What are they doing? Well, they're trying to track everyone and all the contact that everyone's had because we have to stop the transmission of this thing because it is a particularly brutal thing. Uh, Ed Welsh has made the comment that sin has the vitality and the life of cancer, a cancer cell. And I want to ask the question today, why is sin so infectious? I want to read you uh, something out of Romans chapter 5, which may help us with this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that man was who? Who was it? Adam. And death through sin. So death, listen, death spread to all men because all sinned. Hear that? Adam blew it and Adam actually took everyone down with him. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. And this is Paul kind of saying, listen, uh, sin was there before the law was given. So sin's not just about the law. Sin is kind of this presence in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, even though there was no law, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You know what Adam did is he actually started in train a domino, that the dominoes falling. And you know what? We're just one of the dominoes. His sin at the start was different to ours. We sin, but his sin at the start was different to ours and we're one of the dominoes that fall now, some of you might sit there and you go, that's a bit unfair. Let's go, well, it is. And you've just put your bit in on, on top of it. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do you know what this is called? This is the great doctrine of original sin. This is a uh, quote out of, uh, I think this is the first time I've ever quoted the Westminster Confession of Faith. All right. But confessions of faith and catechisms are helpful to... uh, to capture things and this is what the confession of faith says about original sin the doctrine the sinfulness of that estate whereunto man fell consisteth in the guilt of adam's first sin the want of that righteousness wherein he was created and the corruption of his nature whereby he is utterly indisposed disabled and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good there's probably three aspects that describe 
original sin or the doctrine about original sin in most uh, theological definitions. The three aspects of this. In Adam, humanity became guilty, depraved and alienated from God. You see, Adam and Eve sinned against God and everyone since is a sinner by nature and by choice. All of our being has become stained by sin, including our reasoning, our desires and our emotions. We follow Adam's pattern and we duplicate it in our lives. We hide and cover. It's, it's instinctive to us. But you know what's interesting about the, um, the doctrine of original sin is that we actually have an experience that kind of says, I actually didn't choose this. There's a sense in which we feel like we didn't have any choice in the matter, yet we are the ones now that pass on death and sin sin moves us to isolation it takes us away from god sin makes us depraved the the sin of adam made us depraved it doesn't mean that everyone's as bad as they possibly can be it means at the minimum that there's a god blindness in everyone's life blindness that is both intentional and enslaving now (coughs) excuse me who likes this doctrine? Come on, be honest. This is rocking on, Peter. I'm really excited about this one. Yeah. Cool. So we could, let's put it on the sign out the front. We are original sin believers at the project. It's not particularly popular. Okay. It's not particular, particularly popular. And there's some points in original sin that are a little bit difficult to cash out, right? But do you know what? There's going to be a whole bunch of things in the world that you won't be able to explain without it. Okay? Let me give you a couple. Where does the impulse to be addicted come from? Have you ever worked with someone who's had had, had some kind of addiction and they just keep going back and they know that it doesn't work and that it's killing them, but they just keep going back and back and back and back and back? You're, not, you're going to find it really hard to explain that unless you actually believe that sin, Adam's sin in the very beginning actually messed up something at the core of what it means to be human. You're just not going to have the explanatory power to get through on that one. Why does humanity move in directions that are clearly destructive and unhelpful? Uh, it would, original sin gives you a really good answer for that. I mean, I work with... Um, Uh, people in a counselling context and you know when you're working with people in counselling and pastoral care context who are into sin you get to the point really quickly where you just kind of go what the heck is going on it's kind of like Moses in the Old Testament he's just going look I hold before you life and death and they just go no I'll have death thanks that'll be fine that's what I want that's going to be really really good and you just kind of go what on earth is wrong with you now, you don't say that because you're a counsellor and you're meant to be nice to people, right? But that's kind of what it is. It's like if you could say it to him, you just go, you are an idiot. Like in the true sense of the word, that is an irrational decision that makes absolutely no sense. You see, sin, it's chocolate-coated poison. It's chocolate-coated poison, but it's even worse than that. It's like Welsh, I said before about Welsh, sin is like a cancer cell seething with vitality. That's what it is. And we love it. We love it. Even right now, I'm sure this week, there's been areas of your life that you've just cuddled up to that haven't been the way that God wants you to do stuff and you just made peace with it. 
And you've made peace with a cancer. You've made peace with a seething cancer in your own life that is killing you. But let's return to this point here. How do we cause other people to sin? Well, I would just encourage you to take 10 minutes this week and just have a think about it. Do you know I think people cause each other to sin often? Parents do it to their kids. They ratchet up the pressure on their kids. They exasperate their kids. The Bible talks about that. You can cause someone to sin by just being really rude, can't you? How do you go when someone's really rude for you, rude to you? Do you find it easy to just be sweetness and light and loving? Or do you just want to give it to them? I want to give it to them, all right? That would be a really fair thing to do. And there's a sense in which the rage can kind of come up on the inside when someone's really rude and dismissive toward you and you just want to get them. Is anyone with me? Some of you guys are going, I'm not going to talk to him at the end of the service. Road rage. Anyone ever had road rage done to them? That's hard, isn't it? Isn't it hard to have a good response at that point? It's really easy to blow it. You get a real sense of the contagion of sin at that point in time, don't you? And you can just go through one after the other. You just talk about, I mean, we're not even starting now. One of the things we used to rant and rave about at the school when I was here is about how, oh, you're 11s and 12s, you're a leader whether you like it or not. Everyone younger than you is watching you to see what you do and they're going to copy it. Well, it's kind of true, all right? And I bet you people watch you that you don't even know about and they watch what you do and when you do a particular thing, they use that as a justification for why they they can go and do it. So, that's point number one. Point number two is about this. I'm going to ask this question just to set it up. I wonder what you think life is. What do you think life is? life a traffic jam for you? Life's a beach? Maybe you're just going, that's it, man. Life is just really kind of cruisy for me. Maybe the one on the uh, right is, <coughs> is you, you know. Maybe it's like, yeah, it's okay. It's kind of not all-out warfare, but it's, it'd be nice if the traffic moved a bit quicker on my life than what it is at the moment. The one on the left there is kind of, yeah, well, that's... That's really nice. I feel really relaxed and at peace at the moment. Uh, maybe maybe you just your life is kind of that. It's just like, that's just really peaceful at the moment. That's, that's what I think life actually is. Or maybe it's just like, you know, a piece of cake. Um, and you just think it's, it's uh, easy. Well, I, uh, I want to suggest to you that you're not living in any of those environments. You're actually living in that environment. Um, and you need to have a wartime mentality. You see, until you believe that life is war, that the stakes are your soul, which is what Jesus has said today, you'll probably just play a Christianity with no blood earnestness and no vigilance and no passion and no wartime mindset. If you're in that place this morning, your position is very, very precarious. The enemy has lulled you into sleep or into a peacetime mentality as if nothing serious is at stake. And God in his mercy this morning has you at church to hear me talk about what Jesus talks about, about the fact that you need to have some blood earnestness 
and, so, and get yourself onto a wartime footing. Listen to some scriptures in the Bible that kind of indicate this. Galatians 5.15, Therefore be very careful how you live. Is that you this week? Were you very careful how you were living this week? 1 Peter 1 verse 13, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Ephesians 6.11, you know this one, most of you. Put on the whole, what? Armour. It's just going to be on. See, you may not have actually thought about this this week. You may have been thinking you're on a banana land somewhere on a Pacific island, but you weren't, okay? You were kind of living some kind of virtual reality life, if that was you, and what was actually happening was a war, and you just missed it, all right? And you may have actually got your leg blown off this week, and you didn't even notice, okay? Um, Because it just is. It just always is. It's always a war, all right? It's always a war. What about this one? 1 Peter 5 verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to what? He was after you this week, all right? The devil was after you this week and he wanted to take you down. And some of you, he succeeded, probably. Some of you, you just gave in. He gotcha. It's like he tried the same temptation he did 20 years ago and it still works, all right? He's not, he doesn't have any new tactics because he doesn't need any new tactics for you. And you know what? You walk around in a world where a lion in the shape of the devil walks around trying to take you out. That is not a Pacific island, folks. It is not. It's not even a traffic jam. It's not a one-arm push-up. It's a war zone. And this one, 1 Peter 2 verse 11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against what? See, that's happened this week. And I'm not, some of you might go, oh, some of the girls are a bit angry. I'm not angry, okay? But I'm agitating. I'm wanting to agitate you to actually think about life the way life actually is. You've probably, if you're anything like me, you've had moments where you've let the passions of your flesh wage war against you this week. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You just have. And it's just like there's a part of your heart that's kind of died this week because you weren't aggressive enough this week and you just let it happen. And here's a very seldom quoted scripture. Matthew 11 verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now... The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Do you know what we've uh, actually read today in Mark chapter 9 is Jesus is telling you that you need to be violent. Who do you need to be violent toward? Who do you need to be violent toward? You know, Satan, yeah, but if you go back to the scripture, that's true. If you go back yourself, do you see that? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your fault causes you to sin, cut it off. You see, Jesus is saying in Matthew 11 here, you are not going to make it to heaven unless you're violent toward yourself. Do you hear that? And this is not some cushy kind of grace kind of thing, right? Where you just go, oh, just give it your best shot. Jesus is saying, if you actually don't pluck your eye out, cut your hand off and cut your foot off for the things that catch you up, you won't make it, you're going to go to hell. 
Ted Welsh says this. He says, there is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Underneath what seems to be the placid demeanour of those who are not ruled by their desires is the heart of a warrior. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. This is modern warfare in which you are not always sure where the enemy lurks. It is guerrilla warfare. There are strategically placed snipers. You let your guard down for a moment and the village you thought was safe opens fire on you. There's something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. And so we get to the words of Jesus. <coughs> if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Sin requires unconventional warfare. And I would ask you this morning, are you walking in this world with the vigilance that is in keeping with the inherent dangers of the world that you live in? How could someone else tell that you are walking that way? How does your ministry, the things that you're doing for God and your playfulness demonstrate that you're aware of the fact that you walk in a dangerous, dangerous world? You see, there's a triad out there that is gunning for your downfall and that is the world, the flesh and the devil. And Jesus calls for you to take drastic behaviour to curtail sin. He would say to you this morning, look how this damages you. Look how it damages us. Whatever it takes to get it out of your life, that's what you need to do. And I wonder at this point if I uh, asked you this question, what you would answer. Maybe this would be a good question to uh, talk about with someone at the end of the service today. What are two sins that you're at war with at the moment? Could you answer that? What, where's the pitched battle in your life at the moment? John Piper says this, If you are not at odds with sin, you are not at home with Jesus. Let that ring deeply. If you're not at odds with sin, you're not at home with Jesus. Not because being at odds with sin makes you at home with Jesus, but because being at home with Jesus makes you at odds with sin. Paul says this about sin in Romans 8, 13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, to the sinful nature, you will what? Die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. uh, An old-time theologian, John Owen, wrote a classic work called The Mortification of Sin. His line is this. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Susanna Wesley um, gave this definition of sin. She said, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, 
obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things. Whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. Now, for some of you, you're probably sitting here today and you're just going, is anyone with me? You just go, that sounds really tiring. Anyone with me on that? It just sounds really tiring. If I've got to live in a wartime mentality, it's really tiring. Well, do you know what? I've got some good news for you. It's worse if you don't live in a wartime mentality. It's more tiring. You with me? It just is. So you just want to get into it. Have you ever, this is something I, uh, I was thinking about personally a little while ago, have you ever begun to imagine the trauma and the energy that you've expended by the swings from the glory of God and obedience to Him to the most crappest stuff that goes on in your life? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Like you can kind of go from the great glories, can't you, to like the deepest depths in about 10 seconds sometimes. Do you know, do you know what I'm talking about? It's just like I was going really well like for 30 seconds, you know, and then all of a sudden, boom, I'm right down here in the depths again. Have you ever begun to think about how traumatic that is to your soul to actually go from a grand height to such a low, low so quickly? See, sin is it's always terrorizing you. It is terrorizing you. It's weakening you. It's attacking you. You see, the bondage and just being a slave to it and being stuck in it should appear so miserable that you hate sin every time you see it, every time you see it in yourself. And I want to ask the question at this point in time. It's a good question to ask. We'll just uh, lighten things up just a fraction. Are you okay? Listen, have you ever asked this question? If sin is so bad and what God offers is so good, why is repentance so hard? Have you ever, have you ever wondered that? Seriously. Like Revelation 22 verse 17 says, let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come. Like is the door to heaven shut for you? Is it? No, it's not. Can anyone go in? Come on, a little bit more conviction. Can anyone go in? Yeah, yeah, they can, right? Does it cost anything? It doesn't cost anything. Do you get what I'm saying? It's like absolute freedom and bliss exists in being part of God's family. It's it's absolutely cost-free for you. Massive cost for Jesus, but cost-free for you. And he just says, listen, if you're thirsty, you can just come. So why is it so hard? Now, the reason why I'm asking this is because I see within myself that repentance is hard. Have you ever worked with someone and you just go, why don't you just kind of just let it go, can you? Have you ever worked with someone like that? It's not that hard, man. Oh, Really? It's like paradise is being offered and it's like there's something free and someone's really thirsty and you just kind of go, seriously, it's not that hard. Or just, just let it go, champ, all right? It's yours. You don't have to do anything to qualify for it. Well, I'm going to show you a clip from uh, <coughs> an old-time nature doco. 
Has anyone ever seen the... Um, it's about... I think it was made in 1974. And I, that was about 15 years before I was born. Um, no, I'm kidding, all right? I was about one. There you go. You can work out my age now. Um, it's called Animals Are Beautiful People. And um, I'll just, I'm going to show you a clip. How's that sound? First, he laboriously drills a hole in a giant ant. Okay, First, now, sorry, I should intro. What's he doing? He's teaching you how to catch sure a monkey. A baboon is watching him because he knows baboons are incurably inquisitive. Next, he puts some wild melon seeds into the hole and works them in so that they drop into a hollow. Then he saunters off, knowing the baboon is burning with curiosity. The baboon doesn't trust that human being at all, so he plays it cool. But he's dying to know what gives in that confounded hole. Finally, Mr. Inquisitive can't take it any longer. He's got to know what's in there. He reaches in, grabs a fistful, and now his hand's too big to come out. If he had the sense to drop the seed, he could free his hand. Now he lets go when it's too late. Why is repentance so hard? Because you actually don't want to let go of the things that are killing you. You see that? That monkey could have gotten free, couldn't it? And the trapper gets him. The bushman gets him because he's got something that he doesn't want to let go of. And the question for us, why is repentance so hard? Not because repentance is hard, but because we don't want to let go of things that are killing us. Because we like them. Let's be honest. And we don't think that we're going to be okay if we release the things that we want. You know what Jesus would say this morning is he would say that if you've got things that you worship, if you've got idols and sin in your hand, it's too big for you to go through to heaven. That's what he's saying. You won't make it. You will not make it. And you know what's uh, interesting about most people is that most people will give up most things to get heaven, but there are a couple of things that they won't give up there's a nut there's a seed there's a handful of seeds that most people have that they don't want to let go of you see even in danger i mean it's a stupid monkey isn't it all right because even in danger it doesn't just go i'm going to let go of these seeds and sinners do that too don't they it's like even in danger they don't let go of their seeds you see, the monkey, if the monkey lets go of the nut, he's free right then and there. And I would ask you today, are there certain sins that you don't want to get rid of? Certain things that you like too much that you don't release them? Jesus would say to you today, that could be your end. It could be your end. First. Number three sin and salt mark chapter 9 verse 50 jesus says this he says salt is good but if the salt has lost its saltiness how will you make it salty again 
have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The first century, the world of the first century could not survive without salt. Salt provided life in the first century because it prevented putrefaction. Pliny the Younger commented that the salt from the Dead Sea can lose its savoury quality and become insipid. And I think what Jesus has been telling us today is something that can keep you being really, really salty. You see, he wants you to know that one of your main purposes in life is for you to bring life to the world. That's your job. That's, that's your calling, is to bring life to the world. In the areas that you move, you need to bring life to the world. And if you don't deal aggressively with the sin in your own life, you will not be very good salt. Do you know who was the most salty person who's ever lived? It was Jesus, wasn't it? He was the most salty person. Listen to this from John 1 verse 4. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. You became salty because Jesus was salty. Do you get that? So don't abandon Jesus for something false. Don't abandon Jesus for a dodgy infection that will just kill you. I want to finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very centre of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Not a great question. Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Jesus came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. Do you know the good news of the gospel is this, folks, is that God came near in the person of Jesus Christ so that you could become salty and so that you could have life. So don't give it away. Don't give it away. Don't give away life. Don't exchange life for death. Stay with Jesus and become more and more and more alive. I was going to show you a clip, but it was too long. But there's this great scene in one of the Superman movies where uh, Lex Luthor uh, entices Superman to this place that has all this kryptonite everywhere. And they beat him up. And they stab him, Lex Luthor stabs him in the back with a shard of kryptonite. And all the while Lex Luthor's maiden or lady stands there about halfway through and she stands there crying. Why is she crying? She's crying because this grand superman is now so pathetic. And he's so hurt and he's so much less of what he was always meant to be. And we ought to look at each other and feel like that when each other sins. True? 
and we just stand there with a heavy heart and just say you're just not what you're meant to be and there's, this, there's these terrible scenes of Superman's face being in the, in the water and them trying to drown him and kicking him and beating him up and there was something about the glory that he was supposed to be that had been completely lost. Well, Jesus actually came so that you didn't have to be, have your face in a puddle on the ground and have someone trying to drown you. He didn't come for you to be spineless and weak. He came for you to be very, very strong and to be like him. So don't embrace things that make you spineless and weak and pathetic and dead.